But I want to talk to you this morning about the state of the church. And I've wanted to do this for a number of years. I do have a few pastor friends who do this sort of thing annually. Never actually listened to one. I just heard the title of it and my brain started spinning. I thought, well, that'd be a pretty good idea. Audrey told me her pastor had actually did this last week. And so I asked her to send me a, the link to the sermon and listen to it. And of course, what he had in mind is something totally different than what I have in mind. He, he talked about the mission of the church and went to John 17 and preached an hour on nine implications of John 17 and how the church, universal church, should go forward in missions. It was very good. Uh, but again, it's, it's not what I had in mind for this particular moment that we have together and what I've had in my mind for, again, the last two or three years to do this. I really want to remind you of some things that our Lord has done in the past year or so. And hopefully you would draw comfort from that and encouragement from that because much of what he has done, he has done in you individually as families and he's also done in us corporately. So as we reflect on those good things, I just want us to rejoice in the faithfulness of God to us. I also want to encourage you, having seen some of the things that you've done in faith, and at the same time I want to exhort you in some of the most important things. I'm not going to say anything that you haven't heard me say before this morning. In fact, I really just want to remind you of some of those, really one of those absolutely essential things for us as we continue to walk together as a family of brothers and sisters in Christ over this next year. And I really want to begin with loss. I mean, I, I cannot overestimate the loss that you and I have experienced together over the past, I guess, year or so. Uh, once we got to sit down and began to go back through and, and count the number of brothers and sisters we've lost this year, it, it was a little bit staggering. Uh, we've lost some that we have prayed for for the last nine years, and, and Mary Nell and, and Barbara Haynes, uh, long, long, long time members. And uh, we saw the Lord be gracious to them and, and take them home this year. Uh, Miss Francis passed away, as, as well as Katie's story, some that were very dear and close to us. Um, two of you among us, even this morning, lost spouses, and uh, we still hold you up in prayer. Uh, we've seen God's faithfulness to you in many ways. But we do um, feel the pain of those losses as well with Miss Opal and Mr. Eldon, dear friend there, just a dear friend. Really, in, then I wrote the word loss, but then I argued with myself just a little bit. Not really, right? Just a little while longer. Just a little while longer. And we will get to see all these. Just a few weeks ago, the Loy family uh, mourned the one-year anniversary of the passing of Dwight. Still can't get my mind around that. Uh, he and I, I told you several times before, would meet at Huddle House every few, I guess, six weeks or so and, and have a meeting at Huddle House and, and spend at least an hour, sometimes two hours, just sitting there talking back and forth, and I miss those times. And so when we look over this last year, we really have to be thankful that all of these that I just mentioned are brothers and sisters in Christ or in the presence of the Lord. Our hope has been fulfilled for them. And so we rejoice on their behalf, but we also look forward to seeing them again. But nonetheless, we bear that weight. And we may very well bear that weight walking into this next year. 
But at the same time, we have rejoiced. A few families have been blessed by the Lord with the birth of new children. Cody and Lexi saw the birth of Skylar, Hannah and Brent with Annie, and then Caleb and Andrea most recently with Anna. And so we rejoice at that. God has blessed us with more children, and I hope you see that as favor from God. Certainly Scripture communicates it that way, and I pray for more of those. I know many of you are like, please don't look at me when you say that. We've tapped out. Don't want any more, but yet, you know, Tyler and Wallace have a baby on the way. Michael and Ashley have a baby on the way. And so we just need to pray that God would bring more younger couples, I guess, slightly younger, uh, into the body so we can continue to rejoice at the birth of children. Nothing is, I mean, y'all know, I just get excited about that. And I just praise God for that. And while we're on the subject of birth, we've also rejoiced this past year over a number of of our children who have been born again into everlasting life. And we praise God for that, right? I mean, that's so exciting. We've prayed for that for the last nine years because I've watched you go from the hospital room all the way to now they're just running around, just growing up so quickly. And, and yet we saw the Lord bring six of those children to faith. March 6th, we saw Addie and Belle and Aubrey come to faith. Uh, this past year, and, you know, God answered prayers that we've been praying for, what, nine years. Uh, God's faithful. Baptized Cody Priest and Victor as well this year, and Eli was the last one in November, and so we just praised God for what He's doing, and just, you know, we've got so many kids around here. I, I think we had a rough estimate during the Christmas play. It's, it's getting way on up there. It's ridiculous, the number of kids that we have in this body, and and we just continually pray that God would be gracious and shed His grace on them. And He's been doing that. He's been answering our prayers. So we desperately need to stay with that. And while we're on the subject of birth, again, in a very similar way, we have all rejoiced to see obedience in this body through adoption. Just an expression. What greater expression of the gospel is there than, than adoption, right? I mean, there's, I don't know of a better picture of the gospel than adoption. And we've got to see so many of you guys do that. Just an obedience of love. God's worked in your heart in such a way. And this past year, we had three, three boys, Skylar, Britton, and Caden, adopted into this family. But you do the math, and just the families that are, are faithful here, week in and week out, there, there's been... Twelve kids by six families. That's remarkable in a church this size. Uh, especially when I realized how low we got after Paige and I got here after the first year. I mean, we, we got down in the 20s total <laughs> in membership on a regular basis. And now, you know, we've had six families bring 12 kids into their families. You know, and it started with Eddie and Sandra bringing Jordan in, and, and uh, it's still going strong. And we've got a couple of families. I know Rob and Becky have got Samuel. Don't know how that will end, but foster care is the same thing. And we've got another family about to get back in the business, I think. And so we just praise God for what He's doing and what He's done in your lives to communicate the gospel through those avenues such a tremendous way. I looked at some other things. Uh, I guess someone has well said that if you really want to know the things that you care about, where, you, where are you supposed to look? Your, your checkbook, right? I never look at our checkbook. If Sarah didn't make me have business meetings, I would never see the numbers 
but I decided to take a really close look at it. Not you individually, don't worry, but just corporately. And of course, just recently we formed that Titus committee, which is not a committee. I don't even like the word committee, but there's so many of you that are generous. And so I got a number of the generous folks on one team. They went to work and just that group alone gave away over 7,700 bucks this past year. And I praise the Lord for that. That was the purpose of that. We gave away over 10 grand just to the nations. Most of that came in the form of paying for airline tickets uh, back and forth to the nations, but nonetheless. Anyway, when you, when you put everything together, y'all, our, our budget is just a little north of 100 grand. And we gave away almost 35 grand. And I just praise the Lord for that. And we've been on a journey getting there. And I hope we go much further than that. But I praise the Lord for what He has given us opportunity to do. He's given us the heart to do. And you guys have followed through in obedience to that. And there's been other things that have not gone through our bank account that we don't necessarily record. But, you know, we paid for medical bills and families that have lost homes and funerals and paying for Sarah to go to Thailand most recently. You guys are so generous, and I, I praise the Lord for the grace that's been given you to be generous like that because we've gotten some things done that I'm very thankful for. There's been other milestones this past year. The Andersons finally came back home after three years of being gone. I, I, I look back on that, and I'm going, I can't believe it was three years, and then this past year they came back home. But, you know, that was three years that we certainly felt, and we continue to feel Tyler and Wallace being gone, but nonetheless, uh, Caleb was ordained as a deacon in February, almost a year. Uh, and of course, just most recently, I praise the Lord for Sarah's boldness and faithfulness and allowing us to send her out. And so we found ourselves this past year, I say all that to say this, in the hand of God's blessing. He's given us so many opportunities, so many unique circumstances that we found ourselves in. And He's been so faithful to carry us through those opportunities and allow us to just take advantage of those. So it doesn't require too much awareness, right, to see that the hand of the Lord is at work among us. But as far as particular things goes, if someone to ask, you know, what particular ministry has God allowed this church to be a part of? I think without question, it would be our ministry to children. Because we've been blessed with so many kids and we've been blessed with so many families and we've been blessed with so many dads. Oftentimes there's just as many dads. Sometimes there's more dads than moms here. And that's very unusual. And that's a sign of very healthy families in this church. And I praise the Lord for that. But we've given so many opportunities to pour the Word of God into children's lives. And I pray that we continue to do that. And I guess one of my favorite over this past year, and I think it was Becky who made me aware of this. At one time, I guess it was in T-ball and maybe basketball too, all the coaches were dads who attend this church on a regular basis. All of them. That's awesome. That's really awesome. And let me just pause there for just a second because I know like almost all of y'all's kids are involved in sports. And you do need to realize the impact that a coach has on your child. And I'm very thankful for that you dads did that. And I pray that you continue to do that because we desperately need 
gospel-minded men to be in those particular places in order to set an example of what it means to be a dad and follow Christ because many of them are not getting that at home. And I also want to say that as a warning to you guys because y'all allow your kids to participate in sports, but there are many men that I would not ever allow to lead my kids in any way, shape, or form to the point that they just wouldn't play. Because Chris and I have had this conversation today, and I think Chris would give testimony to this. The most impact that he ever had in his life was a coach who loved Jesus. But he had a lot of coaches who didn't love Jesus. And y'all, it's a critical time. Be careful. I'll send that warning. Be careful. It's not worth that. But it is very much worth you dads and moms too who love Jesus taking that helm and taking that role and pouring into the kids' lives. So again, that's a ministry the Lord gave us opportunity to. I never even mentioned it. Y'all just did it and I praise God for it. And I think other things if people pay attention to in the life of this church, they would notice that we're a unique church in the sense that we are uniquely close. I think anybody that's come into this body and really connected with this body and been a part of this body, and I've heard testimony time and time again from people who have, you know, Fort Payne or wherever have moved in and been a part of this body, they've never experienced a body so committed to one another and so loving. And I don't say that shallow. In a, I don't say that from mouth deep. I say that from my, the depth of my heart. You guys are unique. But the more that I study the Word of God, it shouldn't really be that way. The way that we are should be very commonplace and not unique at all if you understand how God has designed the church, right? And I'm convinced that if other churches would move away from what is traditionally taught and accepted about how the church should be run, if churches would be more obedient and study the Scriptures to see how we're supposed to look and operate, our uniqueness would be absolutely commonplace. You could just visit any church and they would seem exactly like a family. Several years ago, you guys bought into something that I showed you in Scripture, something that I had been taught, and that was the church was designed by God to look like a family and not a business. You know, I understand why churches do this. I really get it. Because if you think about this, if you put a building in the mix, and oftentimes it's a large building, and then if you add a budget, and a lot of times it's a large budget, I don't understand why churches brag about their budget. That is the most foolish thing in my mind to brag about. I mean, can you imagine if, if y'all shared with me, our family budget's over a million dollars. I would look at you and go, what's wrong with you? And yet churches seem to brag that their budgets are well over two million and, and up, and I'm just like, what is wrong with you? But nonetheless, you got a building, you got a budget, and then usually you've got a large group of people. And anytime you've got buildings and budgets and people, somebody wants to take charge of that. Somebody wants to run that. Somebody wants to lead that. And being lost people, oh, we just love to provide ourselves as leaderships in those situations, right? Somebody's got to be in charge. And so they create these machines and somebody's got, better, somebody's got to make sure that machine's running and they go after particularly, they say, talented individuals to make the machine run. You know, I remember being in the Northwest and got called to lead a church whose pastor had just taken advantage of the body. He had gotten a, a charge card out in the church's name, 
ran up the charge card, kept throwing away the bills until finally the card got canceled, at which point he just simply left, telling them no idea. So when they began to check the mail, they found all this massive debt that he had discharged up and left. And of course, they were angry about it. But it was a huge building down to six people when I got there. And there was one man who no way, shape, or form met the qualifications for any sort of leadership in the church whatsoever. And yet he appointed himself as leadership because he told me somebody's got to be in charge. So I appointed myself. I walked into that mess. So it doesn't matter if you got 600, apparently, or six. The hearts and minds of lost men feel like somebody's got to be in charge. And so it might as well be me. And they lead that thing in the ways of the world and not in the ways that Scripture teaches us. It's like there's always been those who've ignored the simple, plain words of Scripture when the Apostle Paul writes that this is the church of God. I mean, you can meditate on those words and figure out a great deal. He didn't build it and create it and hand us the keys to it and say, do the best you can. This is not ours. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to Him. And not only did he create the church, but he also designed the church in a very particular way. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And let's look at just a few passages this morning in regard to the design. But then I've got to move on quickly from the design and get to the attitude of it. But look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15. You know the context, Paul's writing to Timothy. He's not able to visit him. This is not the last letter. That'll be 2 Timothy. But near the end, I would say Paul is old and gray-haired at this time, but most feel like he was bald, so we'll just call him old. Very wise, nonetheless, in the ways of the Lord. So if you'll notice verse 15, he says, In case I am delayed, I write so that... In other words, here's the purpose of this whole letter, Timothy. So that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. In other words, he said, Timothy, I'm going to write you this letter, and throughout the letter, you're going to see the things that are important in order that the church might look like the church, because the church of the living God is the same thing as the household of God. In other words, it's supposed to look exactly like a household. Not a business, not a machine, not a corporation, not an organization, but it's supposed to look exactly like a household. Now, turn on me to chapter 5, because just once you get out from this passage into the outer edges of these passages, you see this take shape for us. 1 Timothy chapter 5, look at verses 1 and 2. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a what? Father, to younger men as what? Brothers. The older women as what? Mothers. Younger women as sisters. Now where is it that you have fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters? Do you have those at your work on Monday morning? Not at all. Do you have those in any sort of organization? I'm sure some of you guys volunteer to be a part of organizations so you can just help out and do good. Do you find mothers and brothers and sisters and, and fathers in, in organizations? Not at all. 
There's only one place that you find those particular designations, and that's the family. And so God says, I want you to treat the older man just like you would your father with all respect and honor. And I want you to treat your mother in the very same way. The older women, I want you to treat them very kindness, with, with a great deal of kindness and compassion and love, just like you treat your own mother. That's how I want you to treat the older women in the church. As far as the younger women goes, I want you to treat them exactly like you would your sister. Maybe not pester them so much, but love them just like you would your sister. And the younger men, I want you to love them affectionately just like you would your brother. In other words, when we meet together, we ought to function exactly like a family and treat one another exactly like a family and not just people that we know. Not just merely friends or associates. But we treat them just like a mother or a brother or a sister or a father. Look in chapter 3. It goes deeper than this. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse 4. These are the qualifications of an elder. This is the qualification of the leadership, if you will, in the church. And notice verse 4 and 5. He, the elder, must be one who manages his own business well. Does it say that? Not at all. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. If a man does not know how to manage his own house how will he take care of the church of God? In other words, qualification for leaders is measured simply in one place, and that is in the home. I was not chosen as a deacon because I managed my house well the first time I was chosen as a deacon. I was chosen as a deacon because I was a good business person. What in the world does that matter? Oh, he dresses nice and he's here every Sunday. I bet he'd make a good deacon. He's personable. He's nice. He talks to people. I bet he'd make a good deacon. That is not the qualifications. The qualification is, how does he do with his wife and his kids? Because if he does well with them, he'll do well in the church because the church is supposed to function exactly like a home. But I can think over my past years of service and ministry within the church at the number of deacons who did not manage their household worth a hoot. And that they found themselves in those positions directly contrary to the Word of God. And it never works out. Look at the deacons in verse 12. Same representation. Deacons must be husbands of one wife, a one-woman man, if you will, and good managers of their children and their own house. In other words, if you just want to be a servant, if you just want to tie on an apron of a slave and meet people's needs, the qualification is, well, do you meet the needs of your wife and your kids? Because if you're not wearing an apron at home, please don't put on an apron at church. You're not qualified. But if you're a good servant in your home, you'll be a great servant at the church. Therefore, you're qualified. You see, the qualifications for leadership is built around the home, for the church. If the qualifications for leadership in the church was, well, he's a good accountant, he's a good business owner, he's a nice guy, people like him, he's a good speaker, love to hear him teach, right? And I do realize that's overlapped to some of the qualifications, 
But the underlying qualification is how are you as a dad? Because if you're a good dad, you'll make a great leader in the household of God. Because it's supposed to look like, again, a house. You know, you think about the Apostle Paul. He didn't have a house. I was thinking about this. Didn't have a wife, didn't have kids. And yet God chose him to be the one to carry the gospel to the Gentiles and plant. There is no telling how many churches. But the Apostle Paul understood the heart of God. And if you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, this is what Paul says about himself. I proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And he goes on, just as you know how I was exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. In other words, Paul says, let me describe my ministry to the church. I'm like a nursing mother and an encouraging father. In other words, he got it. He knew he was not in the position to treat them like he was some sort of hierarchy of leadership. He didn't come into the church and lord it over the church. He didn't come in here and say, well, you need to do this and you need to do that and you need to be in charge of this and you need to stop. He didn't do any of that. He said, I came into the church and I ministered to the church just like a nursing mother would her own child and just like an encouraging, exhorting father would his own kids. That's how I operated in the context of the church, the Apostle Paul said. You see, this thing is supposed to look like a family, not an institution again, not a business, not a corporation. It doesn't need a CEO. It doesn't need board members. It doesn't need lawyers. It is simply the family of God, and it should look like a family, feel like a family, and function like a family. And if you want to know why we are unique, it's because you guys bought into that principle and truth that we found on the pages of Scripture you're as much like a family as any church out of the dozens of churches that I've been involved in in my life. You're as much like a family as any church I've ever been a part of. And that makes us unique. It should make us common, but it makes us unique. And so we need to continue to explore the scriptures. And when we find ourselves doing something contrary to the teaching of scripture, we need to change. When we find something going on among us that looks different than a family, we need to stop. And we need to say, this doesn't look like a family, Joey. This is looking way too much like something out of the world. We need to do this differently and begin to pray and explore how we can do this differently. But let me get to the heart of this, and I'll, I'll just confess to you before I get to the heart of this, I'm preaching out of weakness. Not that I preach out of strength every week, you understand. But I do feel like sometimes, maybe a little more than 50%, preach out of progress in my own soul. But this morning I preach out of strength. And I, don't like, I mean, this morning I preach out of weakness, not strength. And I don't like being where I'm at. Because I'm never speaking at you. I pray that I never make you feel like I'm preaching at you. In fact, this morning, I feel like I'm preaching up to you. I feel so weak in these things. But they need to be taught nonetheless, and so I'll teach them. But please don't think that I've learned them. Because the design of the church is important, but it's not as important as the attitude within the church. And if we'll think about a family again, what is the number one attitude that all of us want in our families? 
If you're a parent, you long for it. And it's love. You just long to sit down at the table with all your kids and share nothing but love. To have loving attitudes and good relationships all around the house. And we just walked out of Christmas, right? What's the longing of every grandparent? What's the longing of every parent? Oh, if we could just sit down for the entire time and just be in love with one another and have our words just be an overflowing expression of that love without bickering and fussing and fighting and coldness. And oh, if all that could go away, right? That's God's longing for us. That we would just be overwhelmed with just an attitude of love toward one another. And so I want to take you to that this morning and show you Peter communicating that to us. So if you're with me, uh, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 and I'll show you that. We, we, we may have the, the design right in, in being a family, but I hope that you will understand with me and agree with me that we, we have much work to do constantly in these particular areas. Look at verse 22, chapter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Four times, by the way, in 1 Peter, Peter commands us to love one another or love the brethren. I'm just going to show you two. Chapter 1, verse 22, Peter writes, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls, for sincere love of the brethren, here comes the command, fervently love one another from the heart. Now you've got to walk through this. If you'll notice with me what he's referring to there when he says, since you have in, since you have in obedience to the truth. In other words, you've heard the gospel and you've believed. You heard the truth of the scriptures and you put your faith in that. You believed in the message about Jesus Christ. And having done so... You've purified your soul. The inner man has been made clean, right? And you keep reading, you've purified your soul for a sincere love of the brethren. So follow with me. You've experienced the great love of God in the gospel. You've been filled with that same love. And now you've been equipped to share that love. That's it. Paul says, since obedience to the truth, since you've heard the gospel, since you've experienced the love of God in the gospel... You've been filled with the love of God and you've been, you've been made ready to love others in that same way. And so then he comes to this command. Peter says, fervently love one another from the heart. A fervent and sincere love. That's his first command. As the family of God, as the church of God, having been born again, now love with that love that you've experienced. Turn over to chapter 4. I'll show you one more and then we'll talk about this word that we find in both contexts. First Peter chapter 4, look at verse 7. The end of all things is near. Boy, what a statement. So you've got to understand, I really need to know what's next. Because he just laid out a truth for us. The end of all things is near. So let me tell you something really important. Therefore... Since the end is near, be of sound judgment, sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, let me carry it a little higher, he says. The end is near. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. 
And so he says it four times, and in two times he uses this word fervent. And of course, I realize, Joey, I know what fervent means. It means a sort of eagerness to it, right? A sort of excitement about it and an eagerness to do it. But that word's used just a handful of times in Scripture, and when you see how it's used in other places, right, you get an even broader, pic- broader picture of that word and what it means when he says, fervently love one another in the heart, or from the heart. One of those places is Luke twenty-two forty-four, And by the way, Luke uses this word more than anyone else. It says, and being in agony, Jesus was praying fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Y'all, that's more than eagerness there. Our Lord is in the garden, just a few hours away from dying on a cross, and his prayers are such that his sweat became like drops of blood. And Luke describes that as fervent prayer. In other words, it's not just an eagerness, right? It's a persevering, it's a straining under the load of knowing what he's about to experience. And he's praying so fervently that his sweat becomes like drops of blood. Now, what is it that causes fervent prayer? Well, the Lord was not, please don't think that he was, he was in such a shape because he was about to die on a cross. That's not why the Lord found him in this, why the Lord found himself in this particular condition. The Lord was fervent in prayer because he knows that he's about to face the wrath of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, Jesus knows that He was made, He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf, and He's about to go and suffer the wrath of the Father, and so He's found Himself crumpled up on the ground in fervent prayer. In other words, He's straining up under this load. Now, this word here, if you'll notice, it's in the adjective, fervent in your love, in 1 Peter 4, 7. But it's also used in the verb form in Matthew 12 and verse 13. And you don't have to turn there, but listen to this. You're going to be very familiar with this. It was a Sabbath day. There was a man there with a withered hand. And Jesus says to the man with a withered hand, stretch out your hand. And when the man stretches out his hand, it was healed. You know what word is fervent there? Stretch. In the adjective, it's fervent. In the verb, it's stretch. In other words, Peter is telling us to stretch in your love for one another. And he says in a present tense, keep at it, meaning constantly stretch and strain in your love for one another. So we come to my weakness. You know, our love is so easily swayed, tripped up, knocked off course. Rather than being stretchy, Don uses the word brittle. Our love so easily breaks off. It's almost as if it can't stretch. In other words, when we run into somebody who's unloving, it's like I just can't carry this load and I can't get the bar up off my chest. Or when somebody says something that sends us into a tailspin, all of a sudden we turn away from our love and we resort to this coldness and we just shut it off. 
But yet we're called, and this has to be the attitude in the family, and I know it's the longing of every mom and dad's heart, and it's the longing of our Heavenly Father in the context of this church, that we resist that attitude of coldness, we stop turning off the pump, we leave it on, we get up under that load, and we strain at love, and we stretch at love. Because loving, loving others is not easy. Rob really helped me prepare for this sermon because he came walking up here with Samuel and it's easy for him to love Samuel. Isn't that funny? It's such a stretch and a strain. I mean, the kid don't let him sleep. And he cried for weeks on end because his belly hurt all the time. That's not an easy love, yet they were able to do that. And you were able to do that for your own kids. It's like, you have no expectations of it. I know they're screaming at me. I know they're punching me. I know they're smacking me. But it's so easy for me to get up under that load and strain and stretch that love. I'm fine. Don't worry about me. But let them grow up just a little bit to when they're teenagers and all of a sudden you're like, I just can't carry this load. I don't want to love them. I want to hit them. And let them get a little bit older and make them adults then all of a sudden, your love is so brittle, it'll break off. Man, it's just like a lizard's tail. You grab a hold of it, and all of a sudden, you're holding the tail in the hand, and the lizard doesn't run off. That's the way our love is. Just, just pinch it just a little bit, and it'll break right off. It won't stretch, it won't strain, it's like the weakest thing. It's like the older we get, the weaker our love gets. And how is that possible? Now, let's put an adult in the context of the church and all of a sudden how so quickly we get in the flesh and refuse to strain and stretch at love. I don't know why that is. But I know that is in my own personal life. You let us get together as a family at Christmas and how quickly somebody refuses to lift the load of love and they're done. No straining, no stretching, not doing it. They just need to hear what I got to say. That's how we get. And what you say has nothing to do with love. It has everything to do with selfishness, but it has nothing to do with love. But you got to say it. It's insanity. So let me put this on you as we walk forward into this next year. We, we really have to maintain an attitude of love toward one another, and it's not going to be easy. I know I'm hard to love, but I really need you to love me. And I know at times you're going to be hard to love, but we really got to try to love you. And I know we're not all the same. I mean, some of you got funny personalities. I'm not trying not to look at anybody right now, right? And it's hard to love, but so? I mean, pop a pasty in their mouth, put a diaper on, you'll find it much easier, right? Because some reason, if they got a pasty in their mouth and a diaper on, it's like, I can love them, I'm fine. Let me, let me hold them. I don't care if they're crying. But you take the pasty out, take the diaper off, put tennis shoes on their feet, let them grow up a little bit, and all of a sudden, you just can't do it. I just can't do it. Please do it. This is a family, and your Heavenly Father has called you to love one another. And if we're going to continue to be like a family... We're going to have to love, and it's going to strain, and it's going to stretch us, but we've got to love. We have to get up under the load and continue to love. And you have an enemy that does not want you to be fervent in your love for one another. He wants you to be brittle. But you're going to have to get past that. Now, 
how in the world do you do this? Because I think there's something that you're going to have to fix in your heart before you can ever do this at all. And if you want to know where that is, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, again, I want to take you back to what I read initially this morning. The second part of that, verse 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Let me walk into this backwards so I can set you up and make you feel the pain. I read this one passage and you see if you've got the NAS and I guess other translations, the part that is in all caps is quoting the Old Testament. In fact, you'll find this particular passage four times in your Bible. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, let's just sit there in that principle, that truth for just a minute. In fact, the word opposed is the word anti-tasso. Tasso, we talk about this all the time. Hupotasso is when we arrange ourselves. That's tasso. Hupo is up under. It's a military word, military term. Arrange yourself. Hupo is up under, and Peter uses that word more than anybody else. But the word opposes anti. Anti. In other words, arrange yourself against. So when you understand that in light of the word opposed, look what God has done. God says, if you are proud, I have arranged myself against you. That's terrifying. That's a terrifying truth. In other words, if you're going to walk around in your arrogance and pride, you need to know this. God has arranged himself against you. Now, Peter's done a whole lot of work. If you'll back up with me and look at chapter 2. Verse 13, he keeps using the word hupotasso, or arrange yourself under. Look at verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13. Submit, there's your word. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one and to authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Look down in verse 18. Servants, be submissive, Arrange yourself up under your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Look down in chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive. Arrange yourself up under your own husband, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. In other words, he's going through all this Submit, submit, submit. In fact, look at chapter 5, verse, verse 5. There's one more. You younger men, likewise, arrange yourself up under your elders. So in other words, he's going through all this going, arrange yourself up under, be submissive, be submissive, be submissive, be submissive to the forms of government that I put before you. Slaves, be submissive to your masters. I don't care if they're believers or not, be submissive to them. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. I don't care if they're believers or not. Just be submissive to them. Young men, be submissive to your elders in the context. And then he gets to this. God has arranged himself against you if you refuse to not be submissive. What? That's a little frightening. Because we're not submissive people by nature. We're arrogant and prideful people by nature. 
And you need to understand, and many church leaders need to understand because that word could be communicated to them because they've lorded it over their flock and not been submissive to the Lord. And because they have done that, God is opposed to them. So here's what you say in your mind when I say God is against the proud. You're like, oh, I'm submissive to God. Look at verse 6, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves up under the mighty hand of God. And you say, oh, I've done that. I, I would gladly submit to God. But you forgot that chapter 6 starts with therefore. In other words, it's a continuation of a command that He's already laid down. And that command comes in the second part of verse 5, where He says this, and I'm going to read it literally, how it should literally be translated. All of you, toward one another, in humility, clothe yourselves. And the word clothe is the word tie a string on. In other words, it literally says this, listen, all of you, in relationship to each other, in humility, tie on a string. What's he talking about? He's talking about tying on an apron. Now, where was Peter in his life when he saw someone in great humility tie a string about their waist and love people? That was on the night before our Lord went to Calvary when He took off His outer garment. He took up a loincloth. He tied it around His waist. He got a basin of water and He washed the disciples' feet, including Judas. That so impacted Peter's life. Here he is near the end of his life instructing the church and he says, listen, you say you humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God? No, you don't. And this is where I'm in weakness all over again. Because if you humble yourself up under the mighty hand of God, then this is what you've done. All of you, in relationship to each other, in great humility, you've tied on an apron in order that you might serve one another and figuratively wash their feet. Now we're back to love because love, let me say it in a way that we can all understand it, love ain't no feeling. Love is volitional. Love is selfless service. Love is action on your part, and it's a strain, and it's a stretch. And if you want to be able to love like that, you're going to have to get over yourself, take off your outer garments, and tie on the apron of a slave, and be willing to serve one another in tremendous humility. And let me continue with Sand Mount Vernacular. vernacular. That, that ain't easy. Because we don't want to do that. We want to be served. We like that. I like that. But that's not what we've been called to do. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. You know, not only are we to tie that string on, but He says we're to tie it on with humility. And that's absolutely heartbreaking because the thing that I see that sticks out to me the most when I look across Christendom, what I see is an overwhelming, sickening lack of humility, especially among leadership. 
I mean, social media has become the bashing place for those in pride who want to crush another brother or sister in Christ. I mean, that's a cesspool of pride. I cannot for the life of me find enough humble men to count on one hand that's in leadership. I can find a whole lot of men that are puffed up in pride and arrogance, spouting off stuff and wrecking and ruining the church and brothers and sisters in Christ. But I'm really straining to try to find a man in leadership that's got an apron tied about his waist that is just as humble and sweet as we see the Lord Jesus. We're unique. We truly are. But we have to protect that. I remember, I think it was Jeremy that prayed last week that we maintain the unity of the Spirit. If I had time, I'd take you to Ephesians, where it says we need to be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And do you know what two words are mentioned in that context, in that particular passage, when it tells us about our responsibility to maintain the unity of the Spirit? Humility and love. I say these things to you, you already know these things, and I'm really here just to remind you of these things. But let me tell you, I, I don't know of anything more important for me to remind you of as we walk into this new year. I want us to continue to walk in the favor of God. I want us to continue to have opportunities, and I want us to continue to be faithful in those opportunities. But in order to do so, I'm absolutely convinced that we're going to have to be the particular people that God called us to be, a family. And we're going to have to act like a family is supposed to act. And that's one in selfless, fervent love. But I'll tell you, before you do that, before you come in here, whether that be on Sunday or Wednesday, you've got some clothes to take off and you've got some clothes to put on. And when you hang your clothes up out on the peg in the foyer, you better hang your pride up and yourself up out there and reach and get your apron of a slave and tie it on before you start to engage one another so we can all understand what we've been called to do as the family and household of God. And if we'll continue to do that, if I get to do this next year and read off to you the state of the church address, I'm confident that it will be even more full of opportunities that God has given us and the grace that he's given us to be faithful in them. Let's pray.